would like to read now from Genesis 18. Genesis 18. I'll be reading through verses 1 through 15. Genesis 18, 1 through 15. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought. Wash your feet and rest yourselves underneath the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seas of fine flour. Knead it, make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. And they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. And this is God's living and active word. Let's go to him now in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you for this time that you've given us. And Lord, we thank you for the clear revelation of your word, a word that is living and active, a word that is able to pierce down into the depths of our hearts, and even for those of us who have come with hearts hardened by sin, able to break apart the hardness of our hearts, giving us life, bringing us to repentance, and drawing us to put our faith in Christ. We pray for that now. Glorify yourself in this moment. Use your word by your spirit to bring us and draw us nearer to our Savior, Jesus Christ, and we pray this in his name. Amen. Three times in the Bible, uh, twice in the Old Testament and once in the New Testament, I think you could probably even read that once printed on the front of your bulletin, we see Abraham referred to as the friend of God, or Abraham as God's friend. It's a striking phrase, not least of which because we don't see that kind of language really applied elsewhere or anywhere else to any other characters in redemptive history. It's more striking, though, in light of who we know Abraham to be. Abraham was a man who we've seen already has stumbled significantly in his walk after God. And yet, Abraham the failure becomes known as Abraham, God's friend. Ian Duguid, in his commentary on Genesis, asks, how could such a thing be so? How can Abraham the failure 
become a friend of God. And, and the only answer anyone could possibly give has to be God's grace. Free, undeserved, divine grace can alone enable an imperfect person to dwell in the presence of a perfect God. Only grace allows unholy people to approach a holy God and to call Him, or be called by Him, friend. This morning we see this divine grace break into lowly Abraham's life, bringing him in close, into close, friendly fellowship. And it's recounted here for us so that we too might know this God. And if God is so pleased to graciously draw us, well, perhaps even he can call us his friend. Can you imagine the setting of verse 1? There, Abraham seated under the great trees of Mamre as the sun sat high, filling the dry Palestinian air with noonday heat. All the morning chores were done. And now Abraham and all his workers returned to their tents for a midday break. When all of a sudden, verse 1 tells us, the Lord, Yahweh, appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. And as he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing in front of him. Now, it seems clear enough that two of these three men were angels, as we'll see next week. You can see it down in verse 22, where these two men leave to go down to Sodom, but the other, who's referred to as the Lord, he stays behind and he talks with Abraham. So I don't think, I don't think we're seeing the Trinity here, which would be a kind of imprecise theophany of the one triune God. No, we see three figures, two of whom are angels, and one of whom is the Lord. Look at Abraham's immediate response. A quick, spontaneous reaction from the heart. When he saw them, he, he ran from the tent door to meet them. And he bowed himself to the earth. And he said, O oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. He evidently recognizes the aroma of heaven among these three figures. And he prostrates himself appropriately, even greeting one of them as my Lord. There is, I think, a lot to consider in Abraham's bowing low with his request, O oh Lord. If I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by me. The word to bow is also translated at times, even in Genesis, as to worship. And so here, in humble worship, he asks his Lord for continued presence. Stay with me. Don't leave me. Remain here with me, if indeed I have found any favor in your sight. Is this not the heart of worship? the heart of true worship, to enjoy the presence of God? And is this not also the heart of our worship? When two or more are gathered in His name, there Christ is with us, just as He was in the theophany before Abraham. When we gather together on Sunday mornings, we gather together before the Lord. Here, right now, by the present power of the Spirit of God, Christ, the Son of God, is dwelling in this gathered body, the church of God. We do not see him as Abraham saw him in his pre-incarnate form, but he's here, and we beseech him. And we say, oh Lord, if we have found any favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Don't we long for a sensible acquaintance with Christ's presence among us? 
The heart of any Christian longs to be present with the Lord in glory, seeing our Savior face to face and worshiping Him as He is in His presence in heaven. But while we're here, the next best thing that we can get is His presence spiritually, as Christ makes Himself known to us in our gathered worship. We pray and we seek for Christ to make Himself known as His Word is preached. And in our fellowship, we bow ourselves down low, and along with Abraham, we say, O Lord, do not pass us by. Stay with us. Linger in our presence so that we might enjoy your presence. I think that was behind Abraham's request here. He desired more than anything else the special presence of God. And so he says, let me bring you a little water. Let me wash your feet so you can rest yourselves underneath this tree. And I'll I'll bring you a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. After the Lord agrees, watch how Abraham springs into action. Look at the frantic hurriedness of verses 6 and 7. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seas of fine flour. Knead it, make cakes. Then Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and and he set it before them. And then he stands by under the tree while they eat. Can you imagine it, Abraham? a hundred years old, hurrying about, running here and running there to prepare for these visitors a meal fit for a king, or more properly fit for a king of kings. And that's just it. This divine visitation and the meal that ensued was a, a covenantal meal. This is the only place in all of Scripture, at least before Christ's ministry in the New Testament, where the Lord sits and eats a meal with a human being. The event is staggering to consider. It seems significant to me, at least, that this meal takes place immediately after God institutes the covenant sign of circumcision, which we saw last week in Genesis 17. Do you remember that? There he gives Abraham a covenant sign to signify his being cut off from the world and brought into a unique relationship with Yahweh. And now... Immediately after, as a sign of assurance, Yahweh comes and he, he sups with Abraham, showing covenantal favor through communion of eating and drinking. Perhaps this is not an early paradigm for how God assures us of our right standing in favor with God. No longer are God's people marked off through circumcision, but are shown to have died to the world and been brought into oneness with Christ through baptism. Like circumcision, baptism is a one-time event. It is the covenant sign of our being God's new covenant people. And what follows is the same. Enjoying communion with God through the Lord's Supper. We eat and we drink symbols of Christ's incarnation, His bodily death on our behalf, an assuring sign of our fellowship, our friendship with God. The meal God shared with Abraham, like the meal we share in the Lord's Supper, it's an exercise in spiritual intimacy. And so there's no greater honor any mortal man could have in this world than to dine with Yahweh. And to those of us who trust in Jesus alone for their salvation, they will enjoy that blessing physically in the new heavens and the new earth when we sit and we, we really eat with Christ at the marriage feast of the Lamb. But we enjoy a foretaste of that meal here and now when as Christian believers, 
we partake together of the Lord's Supper. But consider, too, the way in which Abraham hurried himself to show hospitality. He hurried into the tent, runs to to fetch a tender young calf, exerting all his energy, not to mention uh, probably a great financial cost as well, just to serve and make his impromptu visitors feel welcome and at home. It's probably this account which causes the writer of Hebrews to say in chapter 13, let brotherly love continue and do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. In other words, take note of Abraham's sacrificial hospitality and love strangers in the same way. Who knows, you may be serving heavenly visitors. Can believers today serve Jesus like Abraham does here in Genesis 18? Well, on the one hand, we want to say, how can we, when we know Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and will only one day physically return at his second coming? But I don't think we can forget Jesus' parable of the final judgment where he, he welcomes into heaven those people, if you remember, those people who did show Jesus hospitality. Remember what Jesus says in that parable? I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or sick or in prison and visit you? And here's how the king answers them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these, my brothers, so you did it to me. In other words, do you want the opportunity to show hospitality to God like Abraham does here? Feed those around you who are hungry. Welcome the stranger. Visit the sick. Serving these kinds of people is serving God. And here we see a profound intimacy between Abraham and God as Abraham serves and shows hospitality. Well, of course, this this covenantal companionship over a meal was meant to reassure Abraham of the promise that he would have a child. But it was not just for Abraham alone. As we keep on reading, it seems that it was Sarah, Abraham's wife, who was more in need of God's reassuring word. And so our omniscient, all-knowing God kind of prods Abraham here with a little leading question in verse 9. He says to him, where is Sarah, your wife? The question's a familiar one. It's reminiscent of God's leading question in Genesis 3. Remember where God called to Adam, where are you? Or in Genesis chapter 4 where God asked Cain, where is Abel, your brother? The similar question we see asked here should raise our eyebrows as readers. Of course, God knows the answer. He knows where Sarah is. So what's he getting at? What's he trying to draw out? Who is he trying to draw out? Abraham answers, Sarah's in the tent. At this, God begins to divulge the purpose for his coming, delivering the good news he wanted both Abraham and Sarah to hear. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah, the text says, was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, 
Here it was absolutely clear who was speaking. God himself promising what only God can promise. And as the text reminds us in verse 11, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. In other words, what was just uttered was an impossibility, which of course is the arena in which God loves to work in so well. Do you remember how God introduced himself last week in chapter 17 as El Shaddai, the Almighty God? He's underscoring here the reason behind that name. But the promise, when it, when it fell upon Sarah's ears, well, it seemed to her as absurd. Her response was silent and to herself, as the text says, but verse 12 is clear. Sarah laughed. After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Her laugh seemed to come from a place of comparison. She was comparing what God had said with what she could see and observe around her. And apparently, Sarah invested more weight in what she could see and observe around her in her experience than she did in God's Word. Instead of her heart and her mind being drawn away from herself toward the Almighty God who spoke, she instead turned her mind inward and toward herself. She thought of herself as a a decrepit old woman, married to a decrepit old man. And you think the pleasure of both making a baby and having a baby is going to happen? Ha! Sarah's incredulous laugh suggests that even though she had heard the promise previously, given in chapter 12, given again in chapter 15, given again in chapter 17, nevertheless, she persisted in unbelief. And to be sure, the narrative could stop here. In all honesty, many times the narrative, I think, does stop here. What I mean is God does not need to chime in. He could have just kept going. Ate his lunch, that's it. And many times, when we persist in unbelief, God, in his wise judgment, does just that. He leaves us. What Sarah deserved here was not the grace of God's response, but the judgment of God's silence, the judgment of God leaving Sarah to her own will and her own desire and her own wants. Friends, the most frightful judgment God could ever inflict upon mankind is to leave him to his own exalted free will. But God doesn't do that here. He doesn't remain silent. He speaks again. The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. He repeats it. It was in that moment where Sarah realized, oh shoot, God sees and knows everything I just thought. Even though she had been hiding in the tent, and even though she had laughed silently to herself, God saw into her heart. Here's the all-seeing, all-knowing, always-present, all-creative God over all creation. When I sit down and when I rise up, tells us the psalmist in Psalm 139, God, you are there. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I free, flee from your presence? If I go to heaven, 
you are there. If my make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there I cannot flee from your presence. Here Sarah was made aware, and we are reminded that God knows every inner thought, every minute intention, every single imagination of every human being. God never wonders. He's never taken by surprise. He's never forgotten anything. He's never been mistaken. And it is this God who alone who can ask the question, is there anything too hard for the Lord? The answer, friends, is an undoubted no. For the God who knows all, sees all, sustains all, and who is the creator God behind all that is, the answer must be no, there is nothing too great, too hard, too difficult, too marvelous for God to do, for He is the Al Shaddai, the Almighty God. Consider the irony of what God is doing here. The omniscience of God, which perceived Sarah's secret laugh, leads to the promise of the omnipotent God to accomplish the laughable. Here God is promising to bring life out of death. The way of women has passed with Sarah. But that was no issue for God. Is there anything too hard for the Lord to accomplish? God laughs at such a question. So what does God do here? Even in light of Sarah's unbelief, He still promises to bring her a son. At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year. Sarah shall have a son. How good was God here to Sarah? She she responds in unbelief, but God remains faithful. Even in the exchange of verse 15, where, where Sarah lies about her laughing because she was afraid, look at God's unrelenting grace. He keeps the truth of who he is and the truth of what she did right in front of her. He doesn't let her go. Sarah wanted to hide away in the dark because of fear, but God's grace wouldn't let her. Grace is often this tough grace. It deals honestly with our sin. It deals honestly with our unbelief. And even though it's so uncomfortable for all of us, grace brings us out of hiding and into the light. But God's tough grace is also laced with the sweetness of God's goodness. Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. God said, no, but you did laugh. Here, God has the last laugh, in a sense. God ends the dialogue, not so much with the word of judgment, but with a, well, I think with a subtle reference to her soon-to-come son, Isaac, whose name means laughter. The last laugh would be that of God's promise fulfilled when a year from now, Sarah would be holding her own baby boy who would look up at her and laugh. Is anything too hard for the Lord? The answer Genesis 18 wants to show us is no. Nothing is too incredible for God. Oh, and especially for those who are in a covenantal relationship with God. Here we see God count Abraham as his friend. And because God has covenantally decided to bring Abraham into intimate fellowship, there is nothing God cannot do, and there is no ends to which God will not go for those he counts as friends. While in the upper room before his death, Jesus turned to his disciples and 
with his eye upon the cross, thinking about what would happen in the next day and the blood he would shed to secure their forgiveness and their salvation. But Jesus brings them in close and he says to them, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And then looking at them intently, he said, you are my friends. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me. I have chosen you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Do you see? The friendship Abraham enjoyed with God finds its fullest expression in the death of Abraham's ultimate son, the Son of Man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And as he died upon the cross, taking the punishment for our unbelief, he had his heart set upon us, his friends. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. If you're here this morning, and you have not yet turned to trust in Jesus Christ, Well, know that he has given his life for you so that you may know God not as a judge, but now as a friend. And look, just like Sarah in Genesis 18, God knows everything about you. He knows every thought, every imagination of your soul. And to the unbeliever, this this truth is a startling reality. It, It should shake your soul. But even if you're hiding now, like Sarah, in your own tent of fear and unbelief, Know that God has given you an even greater promise of a greater son, his own son, whom he gave to die on your behalf. You need not try and hide from God in fear. Come out of hiding and hide in Jesus Christ. There, under the new covenant of his shed blood, you can know the smiling face of God as your friend. For those of us who have come to know Jesus, who know him assuredly as our friend, our brother, our savior, our king. We see Jesus invite us to also come and and sit with him for a meal. The Lord's Supper is given to us as a covenantal meal, a sign of the deepest intimacy between God and man mediated through Jesus Christ. As Kevin read for us earlier this morning from John 6, Jesus tells us that unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, says Jesus, that man has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I abide in him. And as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father, and you live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate, not like the bread Abraham ate and he died. No, whoever feeds on this bread, he will live forever. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So we participate together in this communion meal. We're being reminded, symbolically, through the bread and the cup, that Jesus is our life, and that only in him, believing in him, Can we have any fellowship, any friendship with God? As the deacons come up and and prepare to distribute the elements of the Lord's Supper, 
Please spend some time silently now reflecting on your relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're, if you're not a believer, if you're here this morning and friendship with Christ is a, is a new reality for you, something that you're unfamiliar with, consider now, perhaps for the first time, your need for Jesus. This communion meal will not save you. It's only a sign. But Jesus will save you. Go to him in prayer. Ask him to make you his friend. Believe that in Jesus Christ, God looks on you as his friend. If you are a believer, if you have trusted in Jesus, well then, meditate now on the beauty of God's love for you shown in Jesus. Perhaps your week has looked a lot like Sarah's, hiding from God, laughing in unbelief at his promises. God so loved you that he sent his only begotten son, making sure that you would not perish but have eternal life. His grace towards you in Jesus Christ is greater than your sin. As deep as your sin goes, God's grace goes deeper. Friends, reflect on this truth and believe. And when the elements come, believingly eat and partake. Let's silently reflect and meditate on God's goodness. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray now that as we participate in this most solemn and reverent of meals, Father, we would also be overjoyed by the grace you've given us in Jesus Christ. So we eat the bread, help us by faith to be nourished in Christ. As we drink the cup, help us by faith to be reminded of our forgiveness in his death and resurrection. And Lord, fill us now with the joy that can only come between the closest of friends. You are our God, our Savior, and we thank you that you have counted us as friends. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As the bread is being